This station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. Look, before we start this episode of the James McMahon Music Podcast, I need to tell you something. I need your help. I need you, when you finish with the episode, to go to the platform you've listened to this podcast on and give me a rating, a review, and to subscribe too. It helps me cheat the algorithm and get more ears on the podcast. And know this, I'm very grateful for it. Also, I have a substack where I write about music and film and telly and all sorts of stuff. I love it if you'd sign up for dispatches. There are different price options, five quid a month, 50 quid a year, and for that, you get access to loads of exclusive writing and podcasts. It's the most helpful thing you can do to support the stuff I make. And again, I'd be so grateful. That's spook.substack.com. That's spook with three O's. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank Jesus. This concludes this test of the emergency broadcast system. Oh, shit, you're listening to the James McMahon Music Podcast. And I'm your host, James McMahon. And this... It's a Spook Media production. So let's go back to number 25 this week. Here they are live on Top of the Pops. It's Simple Minds. Graham Thompson has just had the paperback of his 2022 Simple Minds book, Themes for Great Cities, A New History of Simple Minds, released into the world. And so I thought now was a pretty good time to speak to the author about a band that I like, but I'm only really now learning the cultural significance of. Themes for Great Cities, it's illuminating, thoughtful, and positions these underground heroes come stadium superstars in an admirable new light. Enjoy the episode thanks for speaking to me i have always been fascinated by simple minds they're a band that i like but they're a band that i didn't don't think i really understood for a long time my perception of simple minds was that they were a megastar act from my youth my childhood but i don't think i quite understood the significance of them as like an alternative rock act until a lot later do you think that's something that maybe people my age don't understand about Simple Minds? Yeah, I do. I think that's quite a common kind of uh, response, really. It's it's interesting how success kind of erases what came before. And, you know, I guess in a way that they're, they're the kind of band that couldn't happen now because they had like seven or eight records before they actually made it. And bands don't generally have that kind of trajectory anymore. So, um, yeah, when Don't You Forget About Me happened, um, they had... They had really become a different band by that point, you know, and and um, and it kind of, in some ways, just erased what happened uh, beforehand. And the critics that were, you know, really vocal about how great they were in the early eighties, kind of buried their heads in shame a little bit, um, and and cut those ties. So I, I think, you know, the the purpose of this book, um, well, there were many purposes, but one of them was to kind of just kind of re, re, you know write that I think correct that kind of narrative a little bit and. And reclaim that music, and and also say that bands can do lots of different things. You know, um, I, I think that's quite healthy, and it's quite, um, yeah, it's a good thing that that we don't always have a handle on on how bands kind of evolve. So, um, yeah, 
I do think that they were a name that was kind of muttered, uh, you know, with embarrassment for a long time, if you liked them. Or you had to always say early Simple Minds with the caveat that yeah. they somehow went shit, which, I, you know, is also not really a narrative I'd buy into completely. But, um, yeah, so a very different band in the beginning. And, uh, you know, a collective. And, that, you know, it's the first book I've ever written, really, about a band. And I wanted to really write about a band in its purest form, which was five people who were all contributing really really exciting ideas all the time and how that actually works uh, in its purest form as a kind of creative democracy and that that was a real kind of uh, one, one of the real impetuses for me writing it yeah it's funny i almost see them a little bit like a band like say a band like soul asylum or something that had big hits but sometimes when i mean i love soul asylum and sometimes when I would say to people, oh, I really like Soul Asylum, and they'd say, oh, that that cheesy band that had the hit on MTV, and he'd be like, well, they were making loads yeah. of sort of frantic replacements, S-punk rock for a decade before that. Do you feel like, because obviously you've had the involvement of the group on the book, do you, do you think mm. that the band see their career with that narrative? No, I don't. I think they, they see those early years. Well, if we're talking about Jim Kerr and Charlie Burchill, who are the kind of you know, remain as the two faces of Simple Minds now. I think they, they see those years as kind of the fumblings of a sort of uh, a very earnest and idealistic and uh, creative group, but but which hadn't got to where it wanted to be. And, and I don't think they look upon it as the golden age or the golden period. I think they think, you know, Sparkle in the Rain and Waterfront and Alive and Kicking and those songs are the ones that are really the essence of, of Simple Minds, or certainly... You know, around New Gold Dream when they're making Promise to a Miracle, that is when Simple Minds kind of came into their their true being. Whereas a lot of fans would say, well, actually, no, it, it was just before then. It was just up to then. It's when they were at the best. So I think, and what, what you you know, you get a real sense of, and you'll know this, James, from speaking to artists. You know that they don't they don't they don't look back. They don't tend to reflect that much. They quite often don't know what song is on what album. They don't kind of keep that accounting or reckoning that fans do. So. It moves really quickly, and I think you know the aim of that band was to be big and successful, and to have hit singles and play to lots of people. And I suppose when that started happening, is when they kind of feel the band really began. So it, it's a different narrative. And it's interesting what you say about Soul Asylum because I suppose you know I think you know REM maybe as well as the kind of American analogy of a band that had you know these great IRS albums which were critically lauded and which now you know most people don't really know about you know if they're picking up an rem it's it's post automatic for the people or post losing my religion and that's kind of the the successful years and the early stuff tends to just get um kind of filed away so it, it's maybe a thing it's maybe an 80s thing or before the 80s thing that bands could actually do that have these different lives in a way yeah i've got this friend Stephen hill who uh he does another podcast um and he's really great at sort of almost like providing like a music journalist top line on acts and i said to him i sent him a message i said oh i'm I'm doing this podcast about simple minds they're kind of the british rem aren't they and he he was a little bit like "Mm, kind of but i think that there is something there i mean do you one of the things i was quite surprised about was seeing you know uh stuart braithwaite or james dean bradfield or bobby gillespie like talking about them with real reverence and i suppose that's almost like the that's still me that hasn't quite landed on where on how I view Simple Minds, but they're obviously you know high profile fans that have put their name above, put their head above the trenches, and yeah. and, um, and and claim to be fans. Do you think there's more that maybe haven't done that? 
No, not really, because I looked for them, you know, and I did look for more kind of contemporary, younger artists and, and, and also female artists. You know, I was really keen to try and get a broad spectrum of artists who felt they had been influenced by Simple Minds and those records in particular. I couldn't really find them, you know, they're, they're not really, um, they're not really there um, or, or, or that I could uncover. You know, I think that the artists that came just after, like, you know, Gillespie and Bradfield, who were, you know, just maybe in their mid-teens when Simple Minds were making those records, do have a great deal of reverence for them. I grew up with them. Um, but I'm not sure how much of a kind of cultural legacy there is in, in, in kind of future generations about uh, some of that music, which I think is a real shame. I mean, I didn't, there's not a kind of evangelical purpose of writing this book. You know, it was mainly to kind of please myself because I wanted to do it. But it would be nice if some of those records just got dug into a little bit more because I feel now, you know, there's kind of an orthodoxy of, of alternative references, you know, of, of the non-canon canon, um, you know, unknown pleasures and these kind of quite subversive records at the time are now really part of the establishment. And a record like Empires and Dance still isn't there. You know, it's still kind of under the radar, which is quite beautiful in a way, but it would be nice if more people picked up on how extraordinary that those records are and, and, and you know, fed them into their own music. So I, I don't hear a lot of that and I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about that in terms of uh, contemporary artists. Yeah, it's so weird, you know, you can have a song, you can have a song on the soundtrack to, you know, an iconic movie of the era, you can sell 60 million records and you can still play big venues under the Simple Man's name and yet I I can't remember ever hearing a, like a contemporary artist reference them as uh, as an influence of what they were doing. Can you hear? Can you hear them in, um, well, in contemporary artists in the music they make? Yeah, not a lot. And also, you don't you don't hear many covers. There's very few Simple Minds covers, you know, because it's quite odd music. And certainly, you know, the, the period I'm writing about in those early albums, I don't I don't hear an awful lot of that. Um, not really, no. I think mean, horrors, you know, horrors with uh, the band, the horrors would kind of mention them occasionally. Um, but it is such a really weird amalgamation, amalgamation of influences. It's kind of funky, but it's also sort of kraut rock and it's, it's sort of industrial and post punk. And then there's a sort of new romantic melancholy, a very Scottish kind of feeling of rapture in there as well. And, and it, it's, I think it is, it's a puzzle that hasn't really been cracked and, and, writing the book and talking to all the people who made it, you know, they didn't really, they couldn't really work out how it happened. It was really very much that kind of five-man combustion engine of people coming together and, and just experimenting and not even trying to write songs, just trying to keep themselves interested. You know, I don't know how much of that goes on anymore in terms of music making in, in the kind of higher echelons of just that pure experimentation and trying to make an interesting noise. Um, so, yeah, in, in, in short answer to your question, I'm not sure how easy that is to replicate. Um, I hear some of the sort of gesturing maybe in, 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 in the kind of 80s stuff. You know, that stuff has kind of come back. And that's the other thing about, I think, people starting to put their head above the parapet is that, you know, it's, uh, it's all about timing, isn't it? You know, enough time has elapsed when people feel that they're no longer governed by, you know, cool or, or governed by what, you know, is a critically acceptable thing or, Bands going to fallow periods and come back out again, and I think there's an element of Simple Minds reclaiming that part of their history as well in, in some of their music. You know, there's been enough time elapsed where they can start playing around with their history a bit, and that and that helps too. So, um, but yeah, one of these bands that you think um, 
were really kind of progressive and pioneering, but haven't really necessarily made a real impact on, you know, music going on, going forward. Yeah, really interesting. I guess the um, question that that leads me to is that, you know, I've been through the process of, of, of selling a book and there's a lot of, well, there's obviously, you know, conversations about a market and there's conversations about an audience for, for what you plan to write. Given that, you know, you've you said that you really wanted to write about, you know, almost kind of like four men at the, you know, the, five. I, I don't really know kind of what I'm saying, but you said it really well, you know, kind of like five men who had come together in quite a traditional way as bands used to do. And they, it was really about the experimentation they were trying to craft something of creativity almost like when you approached people like about this book was it a hard sell or was it greenlit quite quickly just because of the amount of records that had sold it almost like given that kind of their influence is a bit cold right now was it a difficult sell yeah i mean i think i think their their influence might be cold but i think the kind of affection for them and the appreciation for them has, has grown quite a lot in the last few years um no it wasn't i i really i knew in, in the way that I rarely know that there was a real market for this book, that, that people who love those records really do love them. And there's, there's quite a lot of them. Um, and I'm one of them, you know, I, because those are conversations I've had for a very long time. And, you know, there hadn't been a Simple Minds book since since the 80s, really. You know, there, there hadn't been a proper kind of look at this stuff um, for a long time. So I felt there was a really good, um, there was a really strong market there. And I also knew that if I could get uh, the boys on board, as it were, and, and get them talking kind of honestly about it, then that would obviously help. But I think, you know, it's now, you know, I don't know what you think, but I think, you know, the, the idea about writing music books is now to find, you know, the interesting story or the, the human story or, or, or to come at it from an angle that, that has a kind of emotional, rev, you know, re resonance. It's not really about, you know, the big revelation anymore or, or, you know, unearthing all these new facts and things like that. I think it's just finding kind of pockets of enthusiasm that, that are going to be interesting for people. And, um, you know, it's the same with, I wrote a book about John Martin and, you know, a few people didn't know, who, you know, a lot of people actually at publishing house didn't know who John Martin was. And I had a really strong punch that there was a lot of people out there who wanted to read about John Martin. A lot of people in, you know, in the sense that it was quite a strong cult audience that, that followed his music. And, you know, that proved true as well. So I think it, it, it was one of the easier books to, um, to sell it was one of the easier books to write you know it's kind of a present to myself in many ways to do it and uh and it's thankfully it's been proven true you know it's it, a lot i've had a lot of probably more feedback on this book you know nice feedback than than any other book i've written hmm, that's really nice to hear i yeah. love that i love that uh alan warner line that the uh the art school band that never had an art school i think that is i think it's elevator pictures go i think that's really good yeah it's so true. It's so exciting. And that, and that kind of, you know, there is that kind of Bobby Gillespie sort of thing about, you know, the, the, the autodidact and the, the, the working class intellectualism and stuff, which can get a little bit well-worn. But it is true in this case. You know, there's something really lovely about these guys coming from, a you know, a pretty rough part of Glasgow and living in council schemes and tower blocks and, you know, educating themselves in, in the ways of, you know, European cinema and, and art school music and, and literature and, and, you know, not really in an academic way, just chuck, just as material, raw fuel for making 
art, just chucking it in, you know, reading a chapter of Camus. Don't, don't worry about reading the whole book. Just read a bit of it and read the back, chuck it into the music. There's something very exciting about that. And just, and just the pace they were moving at, you know, how, how much music they made in a very short space of time. It is very exciting. How did the band, I always think it's a strange experience when a band has worked with a writer on a book and then they get to read it. What, what was the reaction of the band when they got to read the? Mystery? Well, they haven't. They haven't read it. I mean, I, I mean, kind of one of my things was like, you know, this is going to be. I'm going to write this book. It's my book. I, I want to do it properly. I'd like you to be involved. So, you know, it took it, Jim and Charlie. I guess are the, you know are the key kind of guys in Simple Minds. Now it took a little while. Jim hasn't. Neither of them have read it, as far as I'm aware. Um, Wow. They seem very happy with the response to it. But Jim, I think, is still working on some of his own kind of writing. So he wanted to keep his head clear about that. Charlie, I just don't, don't think he's interested in reflecting on the band. Um, I know Mick McNeil, the keyboard player, has read it and enjoyed it and sent me a very nice email about it. Um, so, you know, it's my, it's, it's, it's my take on it and it's, it's my book and it's what I wanted to say mainly about the music, you know, because the music has meant a lot to me for a very long time. And um, there wasn't really, you know, there wasn't a caveat. Or it's not, it's not authorized. You know, it's not like being signed off by the band. Yeah, it's just, yeah. I, was, I was quite, I was lucky in a way to, to, you know, to foster a kind of trusting relationship with them and, and their input. But, um, you know, I know Derek. I think Derek Forbes has got a book coming out this this year, and you know, the bass player, and I'm sure that will, that will have his own take on on all this stuff. And it's difficult because you're dealing with five, six, seven different people. You know, some of whom left the band. You know, quite early on, some of them left later. There's varying degrees of those perennial kind of post-band grudges that all these bands have and issues outstanding. So uh, I just wanted to try and tell it honestly as I could. Um, and uh, yeah, and ultimately be true to my kind of feelings on the music. I did an episode the other day with the writer Dan Franklin, who's written about Electric Wizard and... Ooh. They, you know, they spoke to him for the book. You know, they were cooperative, and they he sent the book to them, and they he, they kept him waiting six months before coming back to him. Not that they were, not that he'd done that for sign off or or feedback, really, but just yeah. well, I've written, you know, I've spent this amount of time with you. You know, I wonder what you think of this. They kept him waiting for six months. I don't know whether keeping someone waiting for six months or just. I'm not going to read it. I, I can't work out whether I could handle that, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I had a similar, well, it wasn't similar, but I wrote a book about Phil Liner and, and it ended up having authorised on the title because I worked with his his ex-wife, Caroline. Um, and it was the same kind of deal. I was like, ultimately we said, I'm going to write my book and um, if you like it, we can put authorised on it and if you don't like it, we won't. And that's fine. We can't really do it any other way because I can't really write if I'm being prescribed that way. And and so I just ultimately sent it to her and, and you know, waited and she came back to me and it was, it was only, it was a few weeks probably. And just said, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, there's things in there that are very uncomfortable and uh, that I wouldn't necessarily want in a book, but it's, it's right and it's accurate and, uh, you know, on you go. But I don't know with, yeah, I'm, I'm quite, I don't mind if Jim and Charlie never read it. That doesn't, the simple minds, but it doesn't bother me at all, actually. Um, I don't really feel, I need their kind of, uh, you know, I don't, I don't need the sign off from them really. I think what they're more worried about, certainly Jim, is that the, that the fans can like it, you know, that it doesn't sort of annoy people, and I think that seems to have gone okay. So, um, and it helps, you know, they put stuff up on their social media when it's coming out, and they kind of 
give it a little bit of a boost. So that, that obviously helps, you know, commercially. But I always feel, I don't know what you feel, I always feel I like to be a little bit out of the circle. I don't really like to be totally kind of, you know, in that authorized um, yeah. circle. Because it feels like you're, you're starting to kind of uh, compromise things a little bit. And I'd rather just write the book and then if people, you know, and people can decide if they want to kind of get behind it or not afterwards. Yeah. No. Well. Yeah. I think that. Yeah. I think that we're supposed to be fly on the walls. You know. I, I don't think we're necessarily supposed to be. You know, part of the lineup. But I also think that. You know, when you're writing about people's lives, it's uh, and and you're not a dickhead. <laughs> I think it's quite hard. You know. Yeah. I, just because you brought up um, Phil Linnett, I have to say, well, I've got you that I thought that Cowboy Song was one of the best biographies I've ever read. I absolutely, I think I've read that book about three times now, and I think I probably lost it because I think I probably gave it to someone. So, thanks for writing that book. Well, thank you. That's that's lovely. I, lo- I love it when people reread books as well. That's that's a real affirmation. Oh, thank you, man. I, it was a tough. I mean, one of the one of the reasons I ended up doing Simple Minds was because I did. I did Phil Liner and then I did John Martin and they were they were tough people to to hang out with, you know what I mean, for a couple of years on end. You know, their lives were, were messy and and so I wanted to this was a kind of gift to myself. It, it's quite a you know, it's quite an upbeat story, the Simple Minds one. Whereas the other two, although the you know, Liner I think was a was a hero in many ways, you know, he was an incredible um spirit, you know, someone who really pulled himself out of really difficult um, yeah, yeah. Uh, beginnings and made something incredible of himself. But they were they were both quite tough lies to write about. So this was more kind of um, yeah, a gift to me. I did an episode with Simon Goddard, and he's four books into his ten books. The boy stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I, there was almost part of me that was like, I was like, are you sick of him yet? And he was like, <laughs> and, he, and he said he wasn't, you know. He said he really, yeah. you know, he couldn't really imagine what that would be like, being sick of him. But I don't know. I don't know. It's a lot of time in someone else's head, isn't it? It is. It is. And 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 yeah, when the light I suppose, yeah, someone like Boy's moving really quick and he, I mean I know he's writing those books in a very particular way, I think, which is really interesting and quite exciting and, and so it has a different maybe creative sort of uh thrust to it as well. But yeah, it can get it can get it can get tough. And and when you're you know, John Martin who who, you know, lived a really destructive life and did some really fucking terrible things to people. And, you know, you're trying to balance up um you know the art and the artist, and how you kind of how you get that right, and how you sort of honour the people who've you know been left in his sort of destructive wake. While not, you know, you don't want to be a policeman and a moral policeman or be too censorious either, and you don't want to dismiss the, the music. So that you know that took a lot of kind of getting my head around. So yeah, do you know do you know what's next? I mean, I mean, I don't need to tell me so that you know I don't want to be responsible for someone nicking your idea. But do you do you know what? book you would like to write next yeah no i'm doing a book um on top talk um specifically on on the last the last three records so i'm doing kind of you know color of spring spirit of eden laughing stock and i'm doing this the hollis solar record um you know not not a biography but but a kind of deep dive into those records that does feel like a band that has enduring uh, in, in, endure, that are hot at all times that does have an enduring reverence I think for musicians today absolutely yeah I mean yeah it's just it's just grown and grown hasn't it and yeah something you 
again, you can't really measure in sort of record sales or kind of social media posts or something. You know, it's just it's just that feeling that if you know about music, you know that you know that they are revered and that people are increasingly kind of referencing them. Referencing them. Um, so it's hard. That's a, you know, it's, again, it's hard to try and kind of um, to try and get get something out of the mystery of that music without sort of breaking it apart, really. But that's that's what's coming next. That will be out next year. All going well. Well, I have no doubt that you will do it, Graham. Um, thank you so much for speaking to me, man. Like I say, I I always feel like a Simple Minds are a band that I like, but I want to understand them more, and I appreciate that you have given me this gateway into doing that. Great. No, it's my pleasure, and thanks so much for asking me on. I, I really appreciate it. Well, that was episode 163. Thanks to Graham for the chat. Thanks to Matthew Hamilton for hooking us up. The theme tune is by the band Jobbers. And I'll see you soon. So, what's your poison? Why are you here?